Hey guys, Sunny D here. Thanks for tuning in to the YFYI podcast. On today's episode, we're going to be finishing up our study on McDonald's, the great corporation founded by Ray Kroc. And on this episode, we're going to get into some of those um, other key relationships that Ray created that really helped launch the company, um, helped take it to the next level. Some of his personal um, endeavors that he got into in the kind of sunset years of his life and where the company was at when he finished. And we'll also talk a little bit about where it went to since uh, Ray has been out of the picture for the last 30 plus years. So I hope you guys enjoy this episode. Um, a lot of really cool things here. And this is another Storytime Live. And now it's time for the podcast. Going live in three, two, one. Here we go. Good morning, good morning, good morning. How's it going, everybody? How you guys doing out there? Good morning, good morning. It's a little earlier than normal. Did I catch you off guard? I may have caught you a little off guard this morning. Getting started earlier than normal, 7.30 a.m. Eastern Time. Normally, we're at 9 a.m., but we're going a little earlier this morning. Got a pretty busy day today, so I'm like, you know what? Got two options. Option number one, we cancel story time this morning. That was the first option. Option number two was we go an hour and a half ahead of schedule, still do story time, and just make it all work. So I went with option number two. So if you guys are just waking up or you saw a notification, come up and you're like like wait a minute I thought it was supposed to be 9 a.m. it's all good getting started a little earlier this morning early bird where early bird gets the worm hope you guys are doing good hope you guys are feeling good today is Friday it's May 22nd this is story time with Sunny D whether you're on Instagram tuning in you're on one of the Facebook pages you're listening to this on the podcast you're listening to the live broadcast that goes out on Twitter, however you're consuming the content. Just want to say good morning to you. Excited to be back uh, this week. We've had a fun time. I know I've had a fun time. Hopefully you have too. And we've been doing a little study of this little company. You may have heard of it. It's called the McDonald's Corporation. Ever heard of it? So the McDonald's Corporation has been our focus this week. We've been kind of going through, um, and and one of the big things, a lot of the takeaways for me, you know, reading the book um, that we're reading from this week, grinding it out, the making of McDonald's. One of the big things is just that origin story, and that's what I wanted to share. A lot of people don't, you know, maybe don't know too much about it. If you saw the movie The Founder. Uh, then I mean an incredible movie starring Michael Keaton that came out a few years ago you'll get a really uh, good I think snapshot of what the story is all about with the infamous uh, Ray Kroc who you know is the movie called the founder right so the, you're like okay he's the founder but as you guys have been hanging out over the past week you know you've heard a lot about the McDonald's brothers and there wasn't that much I mean they were in the movie 
So there was a little bit about them, but there wasn't a whole lot about the McDonald's brothers. Uh, Dick and Mac, who started McDonald's, the first restaurant in San Bernardino, California, and that was in 1940. Ray didn't come into the picture until the 50s, right? So he meets them in like 53, 54, and just blown away by their operation. And he wants to take this operation and duplicate it and open it all over the United States and, I mean, eventually all over the world. He thinks it's that good. And there was a couple of reasons why he thought it was so good because one of them was, you know, he saw potential for him at the time. He had Prince Castle, you know, sales company. He was selling these multi-mixer milkshake machines and they were like his best customer. And that's what made him go check out their business in the first place. Cause he's like, what are these guys doing? They're buying all these like machines from me, which I love, but like, what are they doing? So when he gets out there to San Bernardino and he sees this operation and he sees they've got eight of these things, these multi-mixers going on, eight of them, eight of them. And he's like trying to sell, you know, door to door, restaurant to restaurant, one. But he sees them with eight multi-mixers going at the same time. And he's like, that's the most incredible thing I've ever seen. But what really blows him away is, is he watches the operation that they have going on. I mean, it's a slick operation and he sees that, you know, out the gate. He's like, I got to be, you know, I got to be a part of this somehow. And that's kind of what started the relationship. <clears throat> and he presents it to them. And, you know, at that point, right, they were comfortable. They were happy with what they had. They weren't, you know, their ambition was kind of like, you know, we're good. We don't need any more headaches. You know, we don't need to expand. We don't need to have more locations. We're happy with the one that we have. There was a little, you know, I guess you could say secret that they had. They had sold some you know, rights to people to open restaurants, 10 other ones. But they were kind of like, you know, <clears throat> we're good with our location here. We don't want it. We don't want any part of it. And the big thing is they're also like, who are we going to get to do this? Who are we going to get to run these stores? And that's when Ray presents them uh, with himself. You know, mind you, he's 52 years old, right? 30 years he's been out in the field working all different types of jobs and the multi-mixer thing is actually yielding some results for a change because he had lots of ups and downs. But as he's getting you know, older and older, he's thinking, you know, I haven't really um, lost my ambition. I just, I'm looking for that next thing that could take me to the next level. And that was kind of his drive and I think that's really what propelled him, you know, not only in the beginning of his life, <clears throat> which I shared a lot of those cool stories, um, but also in the beginning of McDonald's, which was able to take him really to that next level. And they agree. He goes back with a contract in hand, gets started, and he's right outside of Chicago and gets started with that first store, which was a headache because it wasn't California. There was a lot of things to consider. Um, gets started, starts growing. And he starts building out the team. 
you know, and building your team is is uh, is going to be crucial as you develop your thing, whatever your thing is, your business, your salon, your barbershop, your company, but building out your team. And as we started story time, I shared a lot of those different things with you guys as I was reading through my books, the YFYI book series. You know, we went through book one, which was your first year in the beauty industry, how to not just survive, but thrive in the business of beauty. Um, and then we read through book two, which is your first year in salon ownership, which is a guide for business owners and the things I've learned owning salons over the past going on 11 years. And then I was like, well, let's keep story time going, right? We still were under our Corona, corona lockdown. Um, and so we started digging into these brands. So last week we went through the Ritz-Carlton Hotel Company, which was an amazing um, story. I thought there were really a lot of good takeaways this week. We're focusing on McDonald's from the book Grinding It Out by Ray Kroc. Um, we've also got, I'm looking at my little stack. We've got Ikea, we've got Coca-Cola, we've got Apple, we've got Starbucks, we've got Patron, a couple other companies over there, I'm sure. I'm finishing up one right now on Samsung, Samsung Rising, amazing book. Um, so I'm sure that'll end up in the fold. Um, but with these, you know, sharing some of my notes, some of my takeaways, reading some of the chapters, you know, that's what we've been doing here on Storytime, and hopefully you guys have been having some fun with it. And so as we're finishing out this week, we're going to be jumping ahead in the story of Ray Kroc, you know, as he's getting going and building, and he's got that relationship with Harry Sonborn, who really had that vision of where the company could go and help propel. And all along, you know, Ray keeps coming in contact or acquiring these people that have vision and can see the company going further and going faster. And he like hooks his, his uh, train, he hooks his cart, you know, to these people and they don't disappoint. And so where we left off, you know, he was looking for an operator. He needed like an operations guy. He needed a guy that um, because he was getting, you know, the stores were successful. You know, he's starting to eat eight stores, 10 stores, 12 stores. But now he's like, I need somebody to run operations. And that's where he meets a guy named Fred Turner. So Fred Turner, initially when he met Fred Turner, it was Fred and some of his family members wanted to become franchisees. So the way Ray set it up, with the magic of what Harry uh, Sonborn came up with is we're going and we're buying these plots of land that we can develop the restaurants on top of. So we buy the land, you know, then from the person who owns it, they lease it to us. Then we buy and we build the building. And then on top of the building, now I've got the building sitting on the land. Then we lease the building to the operators. I mean, it was, it was genius because it's like, First, you could build a restaurant, like if you were gonna build a salon. So what Ray is thinking was, okay, I'm gonna, you know, I could open a million McDonald's all over the place, or I could take this land because I got the perfect concept. And that's what Harry did. Harry, Harry was the one that was like, well, we've got the perfect concept. Why don't we find a way to get the land and then we can lease the land and then we can build the building so it's like a, a, a salon like a salon in a box or it's a restaurant in this case it's McDonald's it's a restaurant in a box and then we can then take that and lease it to those operators and so that's one of the I mean one of the 
most brilliant things that they did. And with that, you know, being able to then expand. So as you're building your business, right, you're thinking, well, you know, I know for us, you know, wanting to open salons, that's a big concept of what we're thinking about because it's like we want the salons, no matter if you work in Austin, Texas, you work in Tampa, you work in Oldsmar, you work in uh, Davenport, where uh, Keeley just started. What's up, Keeley? Wherever you work, you know, you're, you want that to be the experience to be the same and how do you develop that? So what Ray did was he said, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna, I'm gonna create the restaurant, I know the layout, I know the design, I've got the architects, I've got this, I've got that. I'm gonna create that layout and then I'm gonna then lease it to the operators. You know, so he had met, you know, he had got Harry, Harry had that idea, bing. Uh, what's going on Twitter peeps? You guys are, yep, you're live, live, live. Facebook, Facebook one, Facebook two. There's like three of you guys on, or three uh, Facebooks. So what's going on, Facebooks? I don't know what Facebook you're watching on, but what's up, what's up? Um, so his, he's developing that. So he's got, he's got the Harry in the picture. Now he finds Fred. Fred is an operator. Fred is the guy who he's like watching. Fred has a plan. He wants to get with his family. They want to open their first restaurant. They want to become a franchisee. So they pay the fee. Ray takes the money. He's like, all right, come to my, you know, my main store in Des Plaines and learn how we operate. And I've done this, you know, with one of our salons we opened in Austin, Texas. Our partner out there, we kind of did the same thing. He came, as him and his family, and he came and he spent a week uh, with me here going from location to location and just kind of seeing how things operate. So we could go back. And then we built out, we opened up Austin and he was able to continue that on with my support but he's there really running the operation and so he brings Fred in and Fred is working you know learning how to operate the store so he can get that information and he can be successful while they're getting the location ready and Fred was one of those people that he was like a, a gem a rare find and Fred was the one you know that he wanted to be um, his operations guy and so with Fred you know, he was looking at Fred and figuring, well, you know, Fred is just, A, he, he learned really quick. Um, he learned he was strong at it. And he was the guy that, you know, he wanted in his main office. So I'm going to jump in here. So Fred came to work in our office in January of 57, a year in which we opened 25 new McDonald's operations around the country. He was in on all of them. So we're Jim Schindler, our stainless steel magician from Leitner Equipment Company, and Sig Chakow, the salesman from Illinois Range. Both Jim and Sig worked as if they were on my payroll. They put in many hours of overtime, making sure the equipment was right and seeing that it was installed properly. Sometimes they even helped clean up scrap lumber and sweep the parking lot to help a licensee meet his opening deadline. In Sarasota, Florida, they ran into a health department ruling that deemed it unsanitary to prepare milkshakes and hamburgers in the same room. In our units, of course, the shakes were made close by the griddles and it would have been prohibitively expensive to redesign our structure. Sig Chakow came up with the idea of building a glass partition with an inside door so that the shakes and hamburgers could be prepared in separate rooms, yet served to customers through a single window. 
The health department was satisfied and our operator was greatly relieved. So, you know, there's always going to be those things. So you're going to run into different things along the way. You're going to run into like situations, you know, in your salon, you're in your barbershop, in your whatever your business is. I know some people on here, I know that we've got, you know, people that are in chiropractors, you know, starting a law practice, whatever that business is. If you're working out of your house, you start, you have a bit small business right in your home. You're going to run in uh, to different situations. You're going to run into different problems. You're going to run into hiccups. So it's being able to navigate. And you, you don't have to have all the answers. You know, having some of those guys like these guys um, to have the answers to figure that out, that's going to be one of the keys to their success. And so that's where, you know, that's where you're, you're going to find the strength is in how you build that team out. Um, so we're jumping, jumping ahead a little bit here. You know, so they're having a lot of success opening restaurants all over the place. Um, moving into the late 50s. Now remember, he started this, you know, 55. You know, he's, and when he had that first store in Des Plaines, no money. He was still selling milkshake machines to make money to pay for that first store, to pay for salaries, to pay for everything. Um, so really no money. So... By 1959, he says, my net worth in 1959 was about $90,000. This made it rather difficult to borrow money in the big amounts that Harry and I had in mind. I recall asking David Kennedy, chairman of the board of Continental Illinois National Bank of Chicago, for a loan. The man who would later become secretary of the treasury under Richard Nixon listened politely to my sales pitch on McDonald's vitality and growth potential. Then he asked to see my balance sheet. After glancing over the single page, he stood up and I knew the interview was over. He was kind about it and I suppose I really couldn't blame him. Yet I resented the rebuff and you can, and you can be sure that I did my banking elsewhere from then on. About this same time, Harry had been approached by an insurance salesman, Milton Goldstein, who said he could arrange financing for us with the John Hancock Life Insurance Company. He wanted a pretty hefty fee for arranging the deal, plus a certain portion of our stock. And I was opposed to this, but Harry wanted to pursue it anyhow and see where it led. Now this is a critical relationship and this connection here because Milt turned out, Milt turned out to be a, you know, a godsend. And he hooked them up with a loan, so they got these insurance companies. You know, in the insurance companies, they've got tons and tons of money because they're collecting, you know, premiums from, and they're never, you know, the odds of it happening, right? You have insurance and, you know, knock on wood, you're driving. Um, you know, most people, I mean, if you're driving, you're doing okay. You're paying and paying and paying and you're not getting an accident. So insurance companies have all this money. So they started targeting insurance companies to get some bankroll um, because at, you know, 50... 1959, I mean, they have some stores going, but they're not making money. And that's the thing, there's a misconception, like people see, you know, with all of the locations that McDonald's had at that time, you know, eight locations, you know, five, four, three, even, even just one, they assume, you know, they're making money, but money's coming in and money's coming out. You know, running a business, especially if you're in Ray's mindset, was which was expansion mode, um, you're looking at, Expansion mode means money's coming in and it's going out fast, if not faster, because you're you're continually reinvesting. You're putting that money back in, 
every dollar that comes in you're looking at how can I expand and expand so when you're in expansion mode you're not in you're not in like profit mode you know Amazon is a good example of that Amazon started in 1997 and they didn't really start making profits until the last probably I don't know within the last five years so they've been around you know 20 something years before they really started making profits but Jeff Bezos the visionary and the founder he told them he's like listen guys we are in the business of growth we're not in the business of profits right now we're gonna keep growing and growing and growing we will get the profits but that's not our main goal now if you open one location and your goal is to get the profit you get the profit then you're good to go but if then if you're talking about open a second a third a fourth a fifth then it's gonna take money so most likely any little profits that you had which the margins in every business are different but they're gonna shrink or go away because you're then reinvesting that and so when they hook up with Milton Milton is is one of those um, you know great finds because he's able to line up some funding and they called it the loan they called it the liftoff loan so the loan that Milton lines up <clears throat> You know, Harry introduced me to Fred Fidelli, who represented State Mutual Life Insurance, and John Gosnell of the Paul Revere Life Insurance Company. These two men explained how they had arranged with their firms and the Massachusetts Protective Association to make the loan. So I was intrigued by the proposal and I was impressed with Fidelli and Gosnell. The only problem seemed to be how we could handle the deal among ourselves. My bohemian frugality fought with the idea of giving up any part of the stock in the company. I had struggled so desperately to build, yet the appeal of a $1.5 million was irresistible. The arrangement came up with, after a lot of discussion, what was that I would contribute 22.5% of my remaining stock, leaving me with 54.25%. Harry would put in 22.5%, and June Martino would give up 22.5% of hers. It turned out to be the best deal those three insurance companies ever made. They sold their stock a few years later for between seven and $10 million. That is one hell of a return on investment. However, if they'd waited until 1973 to sell, they could have gotten over $500 million. You know, so that's one of those things where they invested, right, the insurance companies got stock. And we talked about that a while ago where you could get stock. If you're working in a company and you see potential in that company, you see that company growing, um, you need to find out, is that an option? Can I get stock in this company? It doesn't have to be publicly traded for you to get stock because if it's a company, a corporation, then it's gonna have created, when it started, an amount of stock that's out there. And now Ray is being careful because he doesn't want to lose control of his company. So he's maintaining 54 and a quarter percent. And he has the two key, 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 key people from the beginning, June and Harry. They've each got, you know, 22 and a half, 22 and a half. So Ray gives up some of his to bring him down to 54. So he still has the majority. So he still has control. But that's what he gives to those insurance companies to make the loan. And they sold out early. You know, imagine if you were, you know, in the in the top, you know, 100 employees at a company like an Amazon and you were in the beginning and you were offered that they couldn't pay you um, so much. They could pay you a little, but they said, we'll pay you some in stock. And you took that stock. Amazon went public. 
I'm not sure what Amazon premiered at when they first went public. Because when a company goes public, then you can sell your stock on the open stock market. Now, if the company never goes public, you still hold on to the stock as the company grows. You could either sell it back to the company. Depends on what the rules are. You may be able to sell it to other people. You may be able to, on the, on the private market, you may be able to sell it um, to other staff members. But if you have the opportunity like these guys did, they just sold early. They still did pretty good. But if they had held on to it, because the company took off like a rocket. Um, and that loan, as it we go on here, that loan could be called the liftoff loan. The liftoff McDonald's rocket-like growth in the 60s. It took a lot more financial thrust to put us into orbit, but we would never have gotten off the ground without it. Our first MCOPCO, McOpCo, McDonald's Operating Company store, was purchased from an operator in Torrance, California. A short time later, in the summer of 1960, we opened our first company-built store in Columbus, Ohio. So that's where they wanted to go. That was the dream, right? To start opening these, you know, these company stores. They have franchisee stores, so they have a little bit of both. And then when they're they're really starting to grow. And so the 60s was, I mean, huge growth. Um, they start building and building and building, um, developing. They've got they're starting to bring on different partners. They're really starting to etch out their their kind of national footprint. And then as we fast forward here, Harry, um, I made Harry Somborn president and chief executive officer of McDonald's in 1959 when he negotiated the $1.5 million loan with the three insurance companies. I continued as chairman and we worked substantially as equals. Harry's sphere was financial and administrative matters. Mine was the retail and operations, dealing with suppliers and so forth. Our interest and control overlapped when it came to seeking out sites and developing them. The two of us were the only officers with authority to close a transaction for a new location. My view was that this relationship and relatively smooth running division of responsibilities would continue when I moved to California. I'm not sure exactly what Harry thought, but I believe his opinion was that I had removed myself from the command center to go off on what, at heart, he considered a fool's errand. At any rate, as time passed, he became increasingly bullheaded and willful, and we began clashing on all kinds of trivial as well as important issues. The only thing that kept us together, finally, was the diplomacy, diplomacy of June Martino. When Harry would counterman one of my directives, leaving some young executive between a rock and a hard place, June would work it out with us individually. She became known in office gossip as the Vice President of Equilibrium. So remember June, June's been with him since the beginning. Um, June is kind of in the middle, keeping things going. You know, they, they start to have these little bit of divisions, there's some riff between them. But I mean, they're building this incredible company and then Ray wants to go out to California. Um, and then we're you know, kind of leaving the Chicago area where they started. And so that's one of those you know, it's kind of one of those pivotal moments and it's going to happen. You know, as Ray started to have different tastes in life and wanted to see, you know, different things that he wanted to do. And I mean, they continue to grow the company together, um, but, you know, he had some different ideas. Um, so that's, you know, kind of where their relationship, you know, separated a little bit. And as we continue, uh, by the early 1968, I was ready to hand the baton to Fred Turner 
and he took it without breaking stride. As president and later chief executive officer, he pressed ahead with the programs I'd started and came up with some dynamic variations of his own. In a way, this was nepotism because although I have never had a son, Fred is close to the age a boy of mine would have been. And he has all the desire and aptitude for business for the business that I could wish. So I've often said that I do have a son. His name is Fred Turner. So Fred became the um, he became the man, right? Fred is literally came in and was just like looking to become a franchisee and goes on to become the head of the company. And Ray goes on to say he has never disappointed me. The great growth of the company over the last five years has been due to Fred's planning and vision and the work of Ed Schmidt and the rest of Fred's team of executives. So Fred has now taken the company. He's really kind of running things and building it. And Ray is, I mean, it's kind of not in the sunset, but you got to keep in mind, right? When he started this thing, he was 52 years old. So fast forward, you know, 1955, he's 52, so it's 65, 68. So now he's creeping up on, you know, 70 years old. And at this point, <clears throat> he's got his people in place. He's got, um, he's got Fred running things. You know, June, I mean, she did well. You know, she's kind of fading a little bit. And he was saying, you know, I see June from time to time. She's an honorary director of the corporation. And she does some good work for McDonald's in the Palm Beach area. One thing June and I will always have in common is a love for McDonald's. When I went back to California, I was looking forward to spending some time sitting in the sun instead of hammering away on the day-to-day -day direction of the company. I wanted to think about the business less, maybe 18 hours a day instead of 24. And I wanted to dream up future developments for McDonald's, but a strange mood came over me when I got out there. I was restless and even more irritable than usual. Maybe it was a sort of premonition of the big change that was about to occur in my life. The Western Region operators had scheduled their convention in San Diego, and they invited me to address them. Well, I thought, sitting in the sun could wait until another time. This was a very exciting period for McDonald's, with a new president at the helm, a couple of dynamite additions to our menu coming up, and the Big Mac and hot apple pie, a new style of architecture for our buildings, new uniforms, and the opening of our beautiful new campus for Hamburger University in Elk Grove. Hamburger University is a thing. You know, they built a place where you go and you kind of learn the way, you learn the McDonald's way. Um, so that's a pretty, uh, pretty exciting thing. So damn right I talked to them. The more I thought about it, the more excited I became at the prospect. There's nothing more fun for me than rubbing elbows with a bunch of operators and talking shop. But there was one couple listed on the advanced registration sheets that particularly interested me. The operators from Winnipeg and Rapid City, South Dakota, Roland and Joni Smith. I hadn't seen Joni for five years when we met at the Western Region Operators Convention in San Diego. Truthfully, I didn't expect to be hit by the same wave of emotion that had bowled me over before, but that's exactly what happened. My suite in the hotel had a grand piano and a fireplace and bar. I brought Carl Erickson along from the Los Angeles office to drive my new Rolls Royce and 10 bar for parties in the suite. 
he hadn't bargained to be chaperone for Joni and me, but happily. That's the way it turned out. I attended a small dinner party the first evening of the convention, and Joni was there with her mother and Rolly. I made sure that Joni sat right next to me. Rolly, you sit down there at the other end. I said everyone tittered. They thought I was kidding. Little did they know, and, then, and when I made my after-dinner speech about how I had attained all I'd ever wanted in life except one thing, little did they suspect that the missing element, all I needed to make life complete, was sitting there at that very table beside me. They probably thought I was referring to some staggering sales record or having Colonel Sanders become a McDonald's licensee or something, some such thing. But Joni knew, I knew she knew, and she wasn't frowning. Man, I felt like a teenager on his first date. As I finished my little talk, I could see that everyone was just going to get up from the table and depart. The evening was over. Well, not, by God, if I could help it. Come on, all of you, I announced. We're going up to my suite and have some piano music and drinks. They all came including Joni and Rolly. He didn't stay long, even though everyone was having a good time singing and laughing it up. Joni told him she was going to stay for a while. After a couple of hours, she and I were the last ones left except for Carl. He puttered around the place cleaning up and looking uncomfortable. I didn't want him to stay, but I wasn't prepared for the kind of stink it might cause if he left. So I told him to hang around. Joni and I talked and talked, and I lost all sense of time. I knew her husband would be madder than hell, but I didn't care because Joan told me she was ready now to get a divorce regardless of what her family might say. She was ready at last to marry me regardless of what gossips might say. Beautiful. Sleep was out of the question. Even after Joni left about 4 o'clock in the morning and Carl stretched out on the couch and was snoring like a buzzsaw, I was spinning around like a top out of control. Then I remembered that I had to give the opening address to the convention that morning. I went into the bathroom and looked at myself in the mirror. Ouch. <laughs> I put some eye wash in my eyes and took some Alka-Seltzer, then some more eye wash, then some aspirin. I couldn't remember what the hell I was going to say that morning. Looking out from the rostrum, Looking out from the rostrum at the huge crowd of operators as the meeting opened a couple hours later, I still didn't know what I was going to say. All I could think of was that Joni and I had agreed that we would meet as soon as possible in Las Vegas, where we would get our separate divorces. I don't know what I said that morning, but I was told many times afterward that it was the most inspiring talk I ever gave. So that's where he, you know, he met his wife, Joni. I mean, she was married, he was married. They had a connection earlier on. They reconnect at this convention. Uh, the writing's kind of on the wall in their, their former relationships. They're both going to be getting divorces. Um, they end up getting married. And uh, they do it at a ranch that he buys in Southern California in 1965. And originally when he bought the ranch, he was intending to turn it into like a, um, a headquarters for McDonald's, a place where they could do, you could do seminars and they would have different training and uh, for the philanthropic uh, foundation that he had formed 
and that was originally when he got the ranch what the plan was and they had um, it was a there was a large a large lodge that had a spectacular view of the mountains surrounding it Joni and I were married there in front of the massive stone fireplace on March 8th 1969 and so that's where he's kind of at in his life you know living out his life um, with Joni um, he also later in life and these are all things that are happening remember 52 you know he's now doing all these things he finds Joni he's opening McDonald's all over he's got you know kind of that 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 dream you know he's attained it he's got the Rolls Royce he's got the ranch in California uh, things are happening the McDonald's company is flourishing um, and then you know he's looking at you know he grew up in Chicago so he's thinking about the Chicago Cubs he wants to buy the Cubs um, the owner of the Cubs is like, he didn't even want to talk to him. He's like, yeah, okay, good luck with that. Wouldn't even, wouldn't even have it. And he says in here, he says, for one, he's like, I wanted to own the Chicago Cubs, the baseball team I had been rooting for since I was seven years old. In 1972, the time seemed ripe and I tried to make an offer, but Phil Wrigley wouldn't even talk to me. He sent word that if the Cub, if the club was for sale, I was the sort of person he would like to have buy it, but it wasn't for sale. That made me madder than hell because Wrigley <clears throat> is just sitting on that team. He hasn't done a damn thing to improve them, but he won't give them up and let someone else do it. It's idiotic. The message he sent me indicated that he might change his mind one of these days, but I sure as hell wasn't going to sit around waiting for that to happen. I just forgot about the whole thing. I wasn't even considering going into baseball when I was flying out to Los Angeles to meet Joni early in 1974 and read the sports stories about the impending and read the sports stories about the impending sale of the San Diego Padres. I thought to myself, my God, San Diego is a gorgeous town. Why don't I go over there and look at that ballpark? I've always admired Buzzy Bavasi, who was running the team and the whole thing sounded very appealing. So I got in the car with Joni at the airport and told her that I was thinking of buying the San Diego Padres. She looked at me quizzically and said, what on earth is that, a monastery? <laughs> she has no clue, right? And so that's where he was going next, right? He's gonna buy a baseball team. I mean, when you think about it, you know, it's like, what could you do? What would you do? Uh, when you start out your journey, like you have to think if we go back to kind of the beginnings of, you know, Ray's journey when he's, uh, you know, kind of flunking out of school, dropping out of school, you know, sneaking around, trying to get into the uh, the Red Cross, you know, ambulance driver, trying to get into the military underage, not really a whole lot of prospects, bouncing around from job to job to job, pitch to pitch to pitch, scheme to scheme to scheme. You know, when you hear that from where he started and then you think, you know, what he became building one of the most iconic brands and companies that the world has ever seen, you would never have have thought that, right? When you heard about those early days <clears throat> and then here he is, fast forward, you know, he's at the point where um, he's ready to buy the San Diego Padres, the baseball team. Um, so anything can happen, you guys. That's a big part of this. Anything can happen. <clears throat> so in 
So here they are, he's with Buzzy. So what we had a preliminary meeting in which I swapped baseball yarns with Buzzy and his son, Peter. We hit it off right from the start. I'd always admired Buzzy and respected his professionalism since the days when he was one of the old Brooklyn Dodgers and was associated with baseball executives like Larry McPhail, Branch Rickey, and Walter O'Malley. Our chat stirred all the memories of my lifelong interest in baseball and made me set my heart on owning this team. But there were to be many anxious weeks of bargaining before the deal was concluded. Smith at first wanted half a million dollars, more than I was willing to pay. After the price was agreed upon, his lawyers still stalled while trying to extricate him from his problems with the government. Don Lubin kept me posted by telephone on the day-to-day -day meetings with the Smith Group. In one crucial session, held in an elegant suite atop a bank that Smith had once controlled, the going got particularly heavy. And Don and his partner, Bob Grant, held a strategy conference in a room that looked out over San Diego Bay. He told me later that they believed Smith was ready to throw in the towel and go along with our demands, but they weren't sure. Then they noticed a photograph on a table that was so faded by the sun they could barely make out the faces of the three men in it. C. Arnold Smith, Richard M. Nixon, and Spiro Agnew. That symbol of faded glory was particularly striking in the wake of Watergate, and it gave my men a psychic lift. They went to bat with renewed vigor. Finally, they narrowed the differences down to one or two points. I flew into San Diego late one evening and met with them and Smith. Look, Mr. Smith, we have delayed long enough, I said. Unless this deal is signed, signed now, there isn't going to be any deal. We signed. The Padres had been in the cellar for five straight years, so I wasn't expecting any miracles. I told the sports writers I thought it would, have, it would take at least three years to build the team up, and I wasn't surprised when they started the season by dropping a three-game series in Los Angeles. Disappointed, but not surprised. I was greeted like a hero in San Diego. Old men and little boys stopped me in the street to thank me for saving baseball for the city. The mayor presented me with an award in the opening ceremonies of our first home game. The sports writers also gave me an award. The U.S. Navy Band and Marine Band played, and cameras flashed as I stood there, arms raised, making the V sign, acknowledging the cheers like a presidential candidate. So how's that for a story? You know, going from uh, going from a small kid in Chicago to now owning the San Diego Padres, um, living out the dream. You know, looking uh, looking out. You know, and watching McDonald's, and he continued to kind of stay involved in the McDonald's Corporation. He continued to be a part of. You know, as as his story kind of comes to a close, he continued to be a part of like development, new product development, um, and then they kept you know kept growing, kept growing, kept growing. You know, and you look at McDonald's today, you look at where the company's at. You know, in that first one or two episodes where I was talking about how they were trying to get to the point where they were going to do like a billion dollars, that was going to be like the big the big thing. 
and then they hit the billion dollars and once they hit the billion it was like they made it and it took them it took them a long time to you know get to that point but now i mean you look at the company today you know it's um it's headquarters still in chicago um chicago illinois um, you look at them today as a publicly traded company. Their stock is trading for $185 a share. You know, so you think about some of those um, early days and some people that got shares and got, you know, offered shares or got paid in shares. And a lot of them cashed out. Those guys that cashed out for millions, um, which could have been hundreds of millions. You know, and McDonald's now, I mean, when you look at from that point in time when uh, Ray's story kind of you know fades. It's they're uh, they're hitting. They're getting close to like four thousand stores. And so then you look at some of the contrast. So he's he's going and he's looking at a strictly a city location, no parking lot, but the seating is on three levels plus an open patio and the modern lines with huge round windows and the mellow brick walls are just gorgeous. And so this is. A, um, the 4,000 store. The really breathtaking thing here, however, is the way the kitchen runs. It's like watching one of those movies where they speed up the film to make people move in a blurring rush. Of course, folks in that store have had plenty of practice in handling monster crowds. The unit opened during the Canadian Olympic Games and did a phenomenal business during that trial run period. In one week, it grossed $74,000. By contrast, our first store grossed $6,969 in its first two weeks. You know, so these are, the, these are the, the new norms, the new levels. And so this is going into the 70s and Ray is, um, he's really kind of taking that, I guess you could say that back seat and he's watching the company grow. Um, people are in place. He's still being a part of innovation, and that was one of the things he wanted to um, control. And so now we're in the in kind of the finishing finishing parts here. And Ray goes on to write: As I finish writing this book, I am painfully aware of the names I have not mentioned in it. Men like Rube Taylor, Commander Alexander B. Dusenberry, Ben Lopetti, Carl Reed and a great many others who contributed significantly to the making of McDonald's. I can only ask all those who have been omitted to forgive me. McDonald's had 4,177 stores in the United States and 21 other countries at the end of 1976, a year in which we broke through several boundaries to new levels of business activity and profitability. In 1976, for the first time, our total system-wide sales exceeded $3 billion. The revenue of McDonald's Corporation exceeded $1 billion. Our net earnings after taxes were more than $100 million, and our net worth was $500 million. The company is still green and growing, and so am I. In fact, my 75th birthday, birthday party made me feel greener than ever. It was a terrific celebration that brought together a lot of the old McDonald's teams. It was great to see them all, especially June Martino and Harry Sonborn. There was a time when Harry and I were convinced we would never speak to each other again. So it was wonderful to have him put his arm around my shoulder and tell me, Ray, you're the best friend I ever had. 
Everything seems to be coming up roses. I'll be able to tell you more manana, manana. And that was Ray and uh, on his his 75th birthday from La Jolla, California. So from time to time, he completed this book in 1977 until he died of heart failure on January 14, 1984 at age 82. Ray Kroc never stopped working for McDonald's. Even in his last few years when he was confined to a wheelchair, he still went to the office in San Diego nearly every day. As senior chairman, he scrutinized a first-day sales report from every new restaurant the day it opened. And he watched the approval. He watched with approval the moves made by Fred Turner and other executives he left to run the day-to-day -day operations of McDonald's. The results were astonishing, even by Ray Kroc standards. During 1983, McDonald's grew to nearly double the 4,000 restaurants it had when this book was first published. In 1983, sales system-wide approached $9 billion, and in December of that year, Esquire magazine saluted Ray Kroc as one of 50 individuals who had made the greatest contribution to the American way of life in the 20th century. He was ranked with psychologist Abram Maslow, theologian Reinald Niebuhr, and civil rights leader Martin Luther King Jr. in the category of visionaries. Kroc gleefully accepted the tribute as good public relations for McDonald's and posed for a photograph that showed him leaning over his desk holding a branding iron in the shape of the Golan Arches. So you've got not only an iconic story, um, an iconic kind of finish, and a short period of time. I mean, you think from, I mean, not really. I mean, you think 52, so he passed away at 82. So he had 62, 72, 82, 30 years. So his first 30 years, he stumbled and stumbled and tripped over his, you know, his own shoelaces and, you know, tried this, tried that, tried that. So that was kind of his first half of adulthood. Right, trying to figure things out, nothing's really working. Finally, at the halftime, he's 52, 30 years, halftime, essentially, figures out this multi-mixer thing, meets these guys out in San Bernardino who had been hammering at it for you know a little over 10 years, starts the McDonald's Corporation. His next 30 years, you know, he goes on the ride of his life. I mean, a lot of work, but another 30 years. So combined total, I mean, his working life, 60 years, um, we see the results. Because he didn't, it wasn't just the 30 years from when he started McDonald's at 52. It was that first 30 years that he had learned just sales door to door, trying this, trying that, and working on all these different things that led up to that second 30 years being the phenomenal 30 years that it was. Um, so that's a, that's a McDonald's story. You know, and some of the stats, you know, as of current day that I was sharing. So uh, right now, their number of locations, as of 2018, they had 37,855 restaurants uh, worldwide. I'm not sure how many countries, but in almost every one of them. Uh, revenue in 2019, $21 billion. Um, so that's a lot of money, right? Employees. 
somewhere around 210,000 employees all started from this little 15 cent hamburger stand. Um, so hopefully you guys enjoyed kind of going through just grinding it out in that foundational period. Um, Ray and the McDonald's brothers and building the foundation and collecting the people and taking the risk and taking the chances and having the vision um, to see something that wasn't there. You know, and that's really what it, you know, what it boiled down to. He saw something that was not there. He saw, you know, the potential for what it could do. And I mean, the company even, you know, beyond serving hamburgers, which it still does. I mean, things like the Ronald McDonald House um, for children, you know, children's charities that help with uh, muscular dystrophy association and um, a campaign they have to prevent drug use among the nation's youth all these different things that the company's been able to do. Um, so whether you like it, you know, whether you eat it, whether you don't like it, whether you think it's gross, no matter what, I mean, you can't deny it's done some amazing things. Um, and it's an iconic part of um, our country. It's an iconic part of the fabric of our country. And I mean, really a lot of other, comp uh, a lot of other countries. So hopefully you guys enjoyed learning a bit about the McDonald's Corporation and a little bit about Ray Kroc. Definitely check out the movie, The Founder. Um, definitely check out the book, Grinding It Out, if you get a chance. And happy Friday. So we will be back Monday with another edition of Storytime. We're gonna be switching gears over the weekend. I'm gonna decide on what iconic brand or company we focus on next. If you have any um, certain you know, preferences of some of the ones I talked about, Ikea, Patron, Apple, Starbucks, Coca-Cola, um, Disney, whatever. If you have any certain ones, if, if I've read a book on it and I've got, I've got some thoughts, it's in, my, it's in my collection, I'll pull it out of the library. I'll pull it out and we'll check it out. Um, so just, yeah, let me know. Um, thoughts, comments on that. Thank you guys for being here this morning, hanging out. If you missed this episode, you can catch them all. They're on uh, my Facebook, probably Instagram somewhere. If you want to take it on the go, you can listen to these episodes on the YFYI podcast. If you go to yfyipodcast.com, you can tune in, um, take me on the go and listen to the episodes there. Um, other than that, you guys have a great Friday. I'm excited. We've now, this is our, our third day of our salons being open. It's been awesome. Uh, guests coming in. Um, having a great experience and feels good to be back um, in the salon back on the job hopefully if you guys aren't back you're opening up soon um, good luck with that and I'm now gonna sign off and get ready to go to work so good stuff I think I'm doing a guest artist this morning with our Paul Mitchell school here in Tampa through zoom because they're still doing distant learning and then I'm off to the salon to make it happen um, so thanks for being here, guys. Thanks for tuning in to Storytime. Catch you on the next one. We'll be back Monday morning. I don't know if we'll be doing 7.30. Maybe I'll do a 9 a.m. instead of a 7.30 a.m. start time. But I'll uh, post about it. We'll have a countdown on the Instagram. So wherever you're watching, whether it's on Instagram, it's on Facebook page one, Facebook page two, you're listening on Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for checking out Storytime. And I'll see you guys soon.
Hey guys, Sunny D here again. Hope you guys enjoyed that episode of Storytime. You know, it's super inspiring just to think about where um, you can start. You know, and you think about Ray. I mean, he started really from nothing with no real prospects in life, no real prospects definitely in business in the beginning, but through consistency, um, through a relentless effort and really just a lot of grinding, you know, you see what could happen. Um, And he's no different from you, from me, from anyone else. If you're willing to put in the work, um, if you're willing to not quit, if you're willing to go through the trials, go through the tribulations, um, continue to grind, failure after failure, um, meet the next challenge with the same enthusiasm as the last one, um, you could do it. We could do it. Anyone can do it. So hopefully this story inspired you. Um, Hopefully you'll come back and and join another episode. We're going to continue with story time here on the YFYI podcast. We're live Monday through Friday mornings. We've been, I've been experimenting just with now being back in the salons and our businesses being back open. What's going to be the best time? We may start a little earlier, um, but if you don't get up that early or you can't get up that early or you're busy that early, you can always check out the episodes on YFYI Podcast. If you want to listen to the episodes, yfypodcast.com, or you can go to one of my Facebook pages and you'll see the recordings will be up there. And that's where we're broadcasting to live on the YFYI Podcast Facebook page, as well as on my page. And I'm just Sunny D on Facebook. So you can check those episodes out there. So thanks again for tuning in, guys. Hope you're having an amazing day and you're going to continue and hope you're having an amazing week and I will talk to you soon. And remember, this is the YFYI podcast. This is the place where you come to learn how to build your business right once or else you will be doomed to have to build it again. Thanks for listening and I'll talk to you soon.